All right. Okay, so we have been going through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles or you can look up here, we have a long passage tonight. I was wondering if I could maybe get some volunteers to help read this passage um, in a second. Um, any, anybody want to do that? You could save my voice a little bit. Jo- Jonah and, and Ashley, you want to? Okay, cool. Guy and a girl. So maybe just do um, somebody do like 1 to 21 and 21 to 42. Is that good? Um, but before we do that, I want to just um, touch base a little bit about what this is, where we are in this book. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Okay? And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus at night. And in that conversation, it was very clear that Jesus was making a statement about what it really means to be righteous. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a religious guy. He was a Jewish guy. In general, he thought that his religion, he thought that obeying the rules, um, being a Jewish leader, was his righteousness. But guess what? He had totally missed the mark. Because the Gospel, the good news of the Gospel, is not about how good you do, or it's not a, a code of ethics. It's not a moral standing. What the Gospel is, is Jesus... Jesus' life for you. It's Jesus' righteousness that makes you right with God. And Nicodemus was coming to understand that. In fact, later on in the Gospel of John, we meet him again, and it seems like he is believed. He's come from this basically religious pride guy, this Pharisee, who comes all the way to know who Jesus is. Now, it's interesting because the next passage kind of relates to that. Um, because now, now we're looking at a woman who we would say is far away from God. Okay, she is a Samaritan woman that we're going to learn about her and learn about her issues and her sin. But they both have the same problem. <laughs> they both have the same problem. They're both trying to find their righteousness, their significance, their holiness, so to speak, their goodness in something other than Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight as we uh, read about this Samaritan woman. Okay, so if you guys would, do you want to start, Jonah, and then Ashley? Okay, go for it. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was, who it is, that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, his, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus, yeah. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from, but the hour is coming. Uh, no, it, 
from, oh, does it not go? What's that? Okay, I'll read it then. Okay, thank you, though, for that one verse that you read now. Um, so we are, let's see, 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. <clears throat> oh, go for it. Thank you. That was a long passage. Let me just pray real quick. Lord, thanks for uh, your word. Thank you that we can gather together here at University of Maryland and, and read it and think about it and talk about it. And Lord, would you be with us? Would your Holy Spirit guide? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> a few years back, I was um, into a thing where I would try to run half marathons. I don't know if, you, if anybody in here realizes that because I haven't run one in a while. But I ran a couple half marathons. I ran the, the Maryland half marathon. I ran the Baltimore half marathon. Anybody ever do that? It's 13 miles. Did you do that? Okay, cool. And, uh, and so, but my real goal was like, I want to run a real, like 26 mile marathon. So I began training for this. And, but the problem was is I never got my mileage up to the right amount. You really need to run about 22 or three miles. Um, so that then when you go and do the real marathon, your body is prepared for it. But I thought, I'll just go at a slower pace and I'll be fine. And so Philadelphia Marathon was the one right there by the Rocky Steps. The art museum is where it started. And uh, this is like, I guess, maybe around 2010, something like that. Some of the RUF kids came up, cheer me on. And uh, so the thing started, and for basically the first half, I was fine. Like, we ran through South Philly. I didn't eat any cheesesteaks, but we were running past places. You know, it was great, the Liberty Bell and everything. And then uh, we got back around to where we started, basically, near the art museum. And I noticed I was getting a little bit of a cramp in my right calf. And as I tried to go further, so now we're halfway, and I'm thinking, this is not good. Um, and so then as I got maybe to mile 15 or 16, this cramp just intensified and it started grabbing to the point where I had to stop, you know, cause it was just like, it totally was like a shock going down my leg. And, uh, so anyway, the last third of this marathon was brutal because it was basically like a hobble jog stretch, hobble jog stretch, hobble jog stretch for like, 10 miles, okay? And it was all the way up to this town, like along the river, Manitoke or something like that. Yeah, Manioc. And people in Manioc were out on the street and they were loving us. They were giving us food and brownies and, and 
all kinds of things, even beer as we ran by. And uh, But what I found out after I... And I did finish. I finished in like four hours and 40 minutes, but it was painful. Like the last part was just brutal. But... What I found out was one, one is I didn't exercise, I didn't, I didn't do enough mileage to prepare for that. But also too, I didn't drink enough. I didn't hydrate myself enough. And, you know, they, you know, basically Gatorade, electrolytes, sodium, you know, these are the things that they believe like call the, cause this cramping. And so basically my body was thirsty. And, uh, I didn't have anything to give it. I mean, I would drink little cups here and there. Um, but really what I needed to do was really hydrate myself well before that, too, even days before that, um, a lot better than I did. Um, my body was thirsty, and I didn't have anything to give it at the time, and, and it was painful. And really the story tonight is about thirst. And it's all about this living water that Jesus is talking about. And it's interesting because... Um, <laughs> In the first, in the first passage in, in Nicodemus, we looked at last week, Jesus often will talk about a physical idea, like being born again, but it means something spiritual. And in this passage, he's doing the same thing. He's talking about, um, being thirsty. He's talking about living. He's talking about water at first, but actually what he really wants to talk about is living water. Something that is going to quench your thirst ultimately. And so I just want to look at a couple things here, but, the first thing is a woman who thirsts. What he runs into is a woman who thirsts. And she's ultimately unaware of this until Jesus shows up in her life. She really doesn't have a handle on her heart. And it's interesting as this conversation goes on, Jesus helps her understand what is going on. He helps her understand her thirst, her ultimate thirst. And, you know, so Jesus is using the physical word of water. He's, he's tired. He's weary from this journey. He tells, he asks her, you know, give me a drink. And then that leads to this conversation about water. And uh, Jesus dives right in. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him. And he would have given you living water. Verse 10. And then a little later, he clarifies again. Everyone who drinks of this water, this well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Um, I will give him the water I will give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. And so there's a real interest here, and the woman gets into this conversation about living water. Give me this living water. Whatever this is, because I don't want to keep coming back here to this well. And Jesus is talking about this spiritual thirst that she has that she doesn't quite understand, but she's going to understand here in a second because um, Jesus helps her go under the surface a little later on in this passage when He says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered Him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. What's he doing here? What's he doing? He's, he's identifying her MO. He's identifying her main source of salvation and hope. And that is in these relationships, in these husbands that she has. And, you know, apparently she has had five husbands and the one is, the man that she has now is not her husband. So Jesus is going way down. It's kind of direct here, but he is opening up her heart. He's trying to show her there's idols within. That she has these thirsts she's trying to quench from these sources of water which are not living water. It's really like a sour well. It's like a polluted well that she's going to. You know, and there was an old country song, I don't even know if you guys remember it, but it was called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Anybody heard that? Looking for love in all the wrong faces. I don't know how it goes on, but 
it, it captured that idea of like, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in all the wrong faces. Men had become her source of life. And I would assume, um, because of this, that there has been lots of emotional hurt, lots of emotional um, bondage. Um, she's been exposed and rejected again and again and again. It's possible that these guys came into her life and they said the three words, you know, I love you. They didn't really mean it, but she gave himself to them. She gave himself fully to them, body, soul, and spirit. And then there was rejection. And uh, it may have been that they just wanted the sex and she just wanted those three words, I love you. And then they left. And then maybe, maybe at the same time, her own sin and her own desires, maybe it's adultery. And I feel like maybe um, she was the one also pursuing other men possibly. In fact, we think that because she comes to the well in the middle of the day, whereas most of the women at the time in Samaria would come together in the morning to get their water for the day. But here we have her at the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock, and she is alone. She's the town whore. Nobody wants her because you stole my husband. This is the reputation that she has. She is broken. She is desperate. And Jesus is opening her up to show her what's going on in your heart. What, what is really going on that you are saying, my ultimate hope and my ultimate love, my ultimate goal in life is that if I could just have a man, if I could just have this relationship, then that would be my salvation. That would be my hope. That would be my security. That would be my peace. And in that time, having a family, having a husband was everything because that was your, you know, that was your retirement. That was everything for you. That was your status. If you were a woman without a husband at that time, you were in a desperate situation. And so she's going after these things. But, you know, this is really the heart of us all, isn't it? <clears throat> because basically our sin nature, you know, says, uh, it, it basically looks at our heart like a big vacuum and says, there's never enough. I want, I want it all. Uh, our hearts are broken. In the middle of our whole, of our, of our souls, we have what could be called a God-shaped hole. In fact, John Stott, the theologian, said that there's a vacuum in the heart of man which only God can satisfy. A vacuum in the heart of man which only God can satisfy. Augustine said a similar thing where he said, um, you know, my, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He saw that in his own life because he was an adulterer before he came to Christ. That his heart was restless. His heart was restless for, for women, for sexual pleasure, for relationships, for someone to say, I love you. And this had destroyed this woman and it can destroy us as well. We seek satisfaction in a million different ways. We're thirsty people. We're thirsty people. So it's not just sexual sin. It's, it's anything we stick in there. And lots of little idols, like we've said. You know, John Calvin, the great quote, our hearts are idol factories and we make them and we try to satisfy them. There's a great um, quote, a uh, verse in Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah is pointing out that Israel is doing the same thing. They're seeking water, but outside of God. And he says this, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the God of Israel, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out or dug out for themselves cisterns, wells, that cannot hold water. This is what Israel has done. They've, instead of seeking God and saying, God, we find our rest in You. You're, you are our provider. You brought us out of Egypt through the wilderness. You've got a great plan for us. We love You. They've said no to that God and they've said Baal gods and a, a multitude of other gods. This is who we're going to serve. This is how we're going to find our hope and our life. And this is what we all do. So we're all kind of like the Samaritan woman. I identify with the Samaritan woman. And you really need to get to that point or else the gospel, what Jesus has to offer, really is not going to make anything. 
So Jesus is helping her be self-reflective. Have you ever thought about that? Are you self-reflective in your life? Some of you might be too self-reflective and too like focused on all your problems and issues and sins and everything. And you need... Well, what's the hope for that? Well, the hope is to look outside of yourself to Jesus. The hope is to look outside of yourself and say, okay, I can see that ugliness in me, but guess what? Jesus is righteous and holy. He died for me. He rose for me. He's my Savior. You know, He's the one who says, even though I've done all that, I am righteous. I am beloved. He delights in me. All those things. Billy had put on Facebook a great story. I think he got it from Anthony Bradley the other day. But I don't know if anybody else read this. But there was a CEO who quit his job. He was making millions of dollars because she posted, or she, she wrote a note of 22 things that he missed in her life. And so I'm going to just read this article. The head of a $2 trillion investment fund has revealed he quit his job after his 10-year-old daughter wrote him a note listing 22 special moments in her life that he missed. Okay, California-based Mohammed El-Iran, Iran, shocked the financial world when he announced his resignation as chief executive of PIMCO in January. Mr. El-Iran, who made $100 million in 2011 alone, said in a recent essay for Worth that his wife and daughter were at the heart of his decision to quit. The 56-year-old said this, Wake up. The wake up call happened when he was arguing with his daughter about brushing her teeth and she left to fetch a piece of paper from her room. It was a list that she had compiled of her important events and activities that I had missed due to work commitments, he wrote. The list contained 22 items from her first day at school and her first soccer match of the season to a parent teacher meeting and a Halloween parade. I felt awful. I got defensive. I had a good excuse for each missed event. Travel, important meetings, an urgent phone call, and a sudden to-do. But it dawned on me that I was missing an infinitely more important point. I was not making nearly enough time for her. He used to leave work at 4.30 a.m. each morning. But since resigning, he and his lawyer wife, Jamie, take turns in waking up their daughter, preparing her breakfast, and bringing her to school. He wrote, he said he's taken a portfolio of part-time roles, etc. But point being is that, you know, he woke up to his life, to the guiding issue of his life, which was money and his job. His big idol was maybe success, power, money. And what was happening is because he was following that idol, other things in his life were being destroyed. And that's what idolatry does to us. You know, we go after one thing, and we become a workaholic and our family suffers. And maybe for some of you, you've experienced that in your own family. Maybe there's been people who've left or relatives you know or friends you know that they've, they've actually left because work has gotten so intense that they've, they've, it's captivated them and um, they can't even love and be with their family. And so this is, this is the issue of idolatry. It's out there. Um, and so all of us have to face this idea within our lives that our hearts are shaped for God and for His water, but we seek other wells. We seek other sources of water. Now, ultimately, she finds it. We know that at the end. She finds that Jesus has met her need as as the Messiah. In fact, it's interesting, her testimony to the people when she went back to town, was come see a man who told me everything I ever did. In fact, John repeats that at the end. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What does she say? She's excited about the fact that Jesus figured it out for me. He finally gave me some you know, wisdom about what was going on in my life. I'm going through all these relationships. Nothing ever works. I'm just destitute. I'm destroyed, I'm emotionally a mess, I'm ruined. And Jesus finally is able to like say, this is the problem. He told me everything I ever did. And so, that was the good news for her. <laughs> that Jesus actually told her, this is the condition of your heart. You're seeking idols, but you need me. You need Jesus. 
you ultimately need this God, and this is the second thing really, a God who enters into our thirst. Okay, and that's really what we have here. So we have a thirsty person and we have a God who enters into our thirst. And so all through this passage, you just have to be amazed at the fact of Jesus crossing all of these barriers. Okay, and this is what I love about Christianity. It's so different than world religions. Ultimately, it's about not about us doing all these things to earn God's favor or follow the five uh, you know, pillars of Islam or the Eightfold Path or all the other religions in the world are saying, do all of this and then you will live. You know, climb this ladder and then you will get to nirvana. Do these things and you'll, you know, uh, you'll be successful and blessed. And Christianity is saying, no, admit that you can't and trust this God, this Jesus who did these things. And so Jesus comes in, He enters in, He... Um, you know, like we said in the beginning of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. And so, in this passage, you see Jesus breaking these barriers. He had it says he had to go to Samaria. Now that's ridiculous because no Jew in their right mind would cross into Samaria because they'd be unclean. They would go all the way around the Jordan River and then up to Galilee to get there. But Jesus goes in to Samaria. This is weird. This is different. This is new. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. In fact, she was surprised to see him there. You a Jew? Talk to me, a woman of Samaria? Samaritans, there was a huge racial barrier here. The Jews considered Samaritans dogs. They were a mixed race. They were there. They were partially Jewish and partially um, uh, Assyrian from way back, like 700 years ago when Assyria came down to Israel and destroyed them. And so these people were the ones who stayed and they were a mixed race and the Jews wanted nothing to do with them. Their religion was different. They believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, but none, none, of the, none else. They had their, their sacrifice in Samaria, not in Jerusalem. So you can see this is not sitting well with the Jews. But yet Jesus goes there. Jesus talks to this woman, even with this false religion. And He tells her the truth. And he speaks to a woman. And back in that day, for a man, a rabbi, to speak to a woman, it was off limits. And yet Jesus is breaking through those barriers. And she was ultimately a woman of a seedy reputation. But it doesn't matter because grace runs after tax collectors and sinners. That Jesus sits and dines with them. The rest of the Pharisees in the religious world are like, stay away, I'm unclean if I get near you. Jesus is breaking in to those places. So it should give us an appreciation of like, this is a God of grace. This is a God really who can get down into my problems. He's not afraid of me. He's not afraid of what I'm going through. And then the last thing here is this, this idea of this God who is thirsty. You know, in the beginning of the passage, it says that Jesus uh, was desiring a drink. He was thirsty. But, you know, think about that a little bit later on. A little bit later on in the story in John, we're going to find Jesus really thirsty. You know, this was the beginning of His thirst. Going to Samaria on this journey, talking with this woman, being thirsty at the well, give me a drink. But later on, He is going to be so thirsty that he is, He's going to say on the cross while his body is being torn apart, I thirst. I thirst. And what we find is that Jesus became thirsty so that we wouldn't have to thirst. Jesus goes through ultimate thirst, ultimate dehydration, not just physically, okay, not just, and it was terrible, I mean, the cross, everything about it. Physically, was horrible. But the greatest thirst that he was going through was this relationship of love and grace and with his Father is now separated. He didn't have the communion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's thirsting for his Father. And his Father has turned his back. And his Father has poured out all the wrath of all that that we deserved upon ourselves, that this woman deserved, that we deserved, that I deserved upon His Son so that we 
might not be thirsty. So that our ultimate thirst would be quenched. I mean, that's the Gospel. That's why this is so exciting. Because this God, this Jesus, experienced everything we did and yet without sin. And He goes to this cross and He is ultimately thirsty. And God is not, His Father is not going to fill Him. His Father lets Him go. He pays everything so that we can then be quenched by His Spirit. So that we can truly have that living water. That we can have that Holy Spirit. That we can have fulfillment in our life. And so Jesus would say things like, Come to to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And He would say in John 7, Come to Me, all who are, who are thirsty, and I will give you a drink. He's always talking about thirst and hunger. You know, I am the bread of life. You know, I am the water of life. I'm the living water. Quench your thirst in Me. And so, you know, for us, I'm going to play a song right now by Chris Rice. You guys might be familiar with this song, but it's just called I Am Thirsty. I'm so thirsty. And it's obviously, he talks about a metaphor in here, the river. And the river is he's talking about is Jesus. It's, it's the thirst He can give. So, before we close and sing the last song, I want, to, I want you guys just to meditate and think about this song. And think about, what are, the, what are these things you are thirsting for outside of Jesus? How are you trying to get your, uh, your life outside of God? And just give those things to God. Take a moment and do that while we just kind of listen to the song and then we're going to close with our, with our song.
this story that reveals our thirst. Lord, would you be so gracious um, to show us our hearts, to show us our ultimate longings, to show us our sin, to show us our idols, Lord, to show us our thirst and how we're quenching it in, in places that, that really don't give us life. And so, Lord Jesus, would you help us to run to you, help us to find our thirst quenched in Jesus, in his love, and his grace, and his mercy. Lord, that uh, we would have rivers of water flowing from us, rivers of life, rivers of joy, rivers of satisfaction, rivers of hope for ourselves and for others. Would you do that in your grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys stand? So this is a new one. Um, this is the first time we've done it here at RUF. We actually heard it at the retreat um, this past weekend for fall conference, and it was it's a really awesome song. I really like it. So I hope you enjoy it. Written by the same guy who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, of Dowdy, and Fearful Heart.